0: and there already has been a lot to see of Esposito this year. From her appearances on the big screen in Gary Marshall's final film, Mother's Day, to the small screen on IFC's Marin, performing stand-up on The Late Late Show with James Corden, and her first stand-up special, Marriage Material, on CISO. She's got two other movie roles that brought her to Sundance this past winter, in the films Operator and in First Girl I Loved. With her wife, Rhea Butcher, Esposito hosts a live comedy showcase and podcast each Tuesday at the UCB Theater in Los Angeles called Put Your Hands Together, They've made a web series for Amy Poehler's Smart Girls called She Said, and they'll debut their first scripted series together, Take My Wife, this August on CISO. If that's not enough, Esposito is writing her first book as well as developing a TV series for FX. There's a lot more to her story, and I recalled some of it that even made news to her. So let's get to it. you know, uh, Cameron Esposito, I i know I've told you this before. You may or may not remember. Uh, I distinctly remember the first time I saw you, met you, became aware of you.
1: Where was that?
0: It was in Boston.
1: Oh, shit. Okay. I,
0: I was a reporter for the Boston Herald, and I was an entertainment reporter, and I was doing a oh my cover story on the Boston improv scene, so I was checking out all the groups. And when I went to see comedy sports...
1: Oh my God!
0: I was uh, unwittingly asked to go on stage as oh one of the volunteers, gosh. and we did a scene together.
1: <laughs> so I was probably 22, or like you something were, like I that. You were, I believe,
0: you were wearing a Boston Bruins jersey because we had if that to. What
1: well, I don't mean, like in a, but yes, we had to. You have to. You had to wear hockey jerseys to do that show. Okay, um, so that was a requirement. So I was definitely probably. I was definitely wearing that. Um, wow and you remember that though yes. that is awesome
0: yeah so I was it. I was aware of you I was like oh this did person did do a good job yeah I was like oh I need to keep track of this person <laughs> that's impressive. Cameron Sizzino. yeah I was like yeah. a teeny
1: kid I got my first job in comedy the day after I graduated from college because I had started doing improv at BC um,
0: okay so you were in Boston for college
1: I was in Boston for college Started doing improv there in the same improv group that Amy Poehler had done improv in 10 years prior. Right, right, right. right. FBC, and so, yeah. like, when I started doing improv, she was just breaking out on SNL. And so it was, like, this idea of, oh, you can, like, do this. Like, if all you have to do is just do college improv and you'll be on SNL, like, just tomorrow, you know?
0: Is that why you sought out the the college improv group? Like, specifically to follow the Amy Poehler plan of success? Well,
1: I mean, I... My friends told me to do it actually. I was a I was a jock. I was on the rugby team. I went straight from practice to audition. I literally was wearing cleats and had like mud on my face. <laughs> and uh my friends were like you're super funny and they had we had a buddy who was a little older than us who was in it and they were like you should you should do this. And then I just kind of stumbled into it. Um but Amy being a, a grad, an alumnus of, like, that particular group was, a, was like, oh, this is a thing. I'm just not from... I don't... Where are you from? Like, where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in Connecticut.
1: So, I didn't... I grew up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that... I didn't really know about the entertainment industry. Like, I didn't really know there were jobs in comedy. Connecticut, right. you're close enough to New York. You probably knew it existed at some level. At I don't know. At some maybe not.
0: level, but I went into journalism... Yeah. Instead, so the idea of even entertainment journalism escaped me for a while. Sure.
1: What was your What was your first focus?
0: I covered politics and cops and hard news. <laughs>
1: right. So different. Different.
0: <laughs> um,
1: although not necessarily politics these days. Kind of the same thing.
0: But it shouldn't be.
1: Do you think it shouldn't be? I think
0: it's serious business.
1: Oh, it is serious business, but poli- providing services Polit- to the community. No, I don't mean that. I think politicians have to really guard their what they say, right? Because what they say has to be what they do, because they have to affect the policy change that reflects the truth that they're speaking. And I think the reason that comics have such an influence in politics is because like, we are supposed to be talking about the truth that's like the point of comedy right um and there aren't there isn't really fallout if we like we don't have to provide the solution for what we're saying so that's why sarah silverman sarah Sarah silverman is a great person to have at the dnc because she can just be like bernie or bust people you're being ridiculous
0: or al franken can even become a senator
1: yes exactly
0: is that but is that what drew you to comedy initially the ability to impact well, I was what an was audience a, thinks and believes. I was a
1: theology major in college, okay. I was super into like what's important to people and how to talk about that. And I really think that's the same job that it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I studied because I was Catholic and in at a Catholic school. I studied Catholic theology and was like, oh, I don't. This is all <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> um, specifically, as a woman, I think to read. The things that the popes say about women, and then you're like, "Wow, I shouldn't do this." Um, but have I you, think, have
0: you have you thought about Islam?
1: Right. Yes. Well, actually, I, th- I mean, I say comparative <laughs> theology, so I I know so that you have thought about I it. have I have thought about Islam. I think the the thing to take away from all faiths mm-hmm. is like, "Hey, we're doing the best we can. Be chill to each other. Be chill to each other." And that's I think that's what I'm trying to say in comedy yeah. too.
0: Did you feel pretty chill? When I uh, first saw you in comedy sports.
1: Well, I I so right after that, I wonder if it would have. I wonder when you saw me because so I worked at at uh, Improv Boston. The winter
0: of two thousand five.
1: Oh yeah, so I worked at Improv Boston then. Right after that. Mm-hmm. So I had been doing comedy professionally for like three to six months or something like that, <laughs> and I auditioned for I Improv Asylum. Yes. Which is, like, the big theater in Boston that is more commercially successful as opposed to, like, nerdy comedy people. No, I remember. And I got on their main stage, and I had never taken a class. And I had, I was 22, I didn't, I hadn't, I had a day job, but I hadn't, like, had a job for very long. And I didn't know how to do anything. Like, I just showed up late for photo shoots because I just forgot about them because I didn't know how you were supposed to remember To do your job. Like, I just was, I was learning everything. So I was on the main, you know, I did six shows a night on the stage in Boston that you wanted to be on and then got fired. Because it was like, you don't know how to do this at the, like, please go get training or something like
0: that. How did did you feel when you got fired from Improv Asylum?
1: I mean, I felt, like, super devastated because I didn't know what I was supposed to do next. Right. Because in the city that I lived in that was like the top, that was the goal. And I had already done it and failed at it by the time I, w- I was like, literally I was less than 23, you know? Um, but I also felt like I understood where they were coming from. Cause I didn't know what I was doing at all. I mean, I was so aware that I didn't know what I was doing. I was really thrown into that situation. Um, which is kind of, how i work best sometimes but in that case it was just i was a little too young a little too green
0: um did you did you seek out stand-up then in reaction I moved to that to
1: chicago because i wanted to do more improv mm-hmm. and then i started doing improv in chicago and improv in chicago is so different than improv in boston because people in boston are like these smart nerdy kind of bookish people so the jokes sure. would be like about nathaniel hawthorne or whatever and then i moved to chicago and there's a glut of 22 year old dudes and at the time and i don't know if this is still true very few like percentage wise it's you know very few women so like i would be on a team and it would be eight dudes and me and they're 22 and they want to talk about like sex like every scene was about every scene was about like an orgy and I was the only woman, you know, so like I knew how this was going to go. It's like
0: the accused.
1: It was, it was not great. I mean, it was not a great experience. So that's why I started doing stand up is because I was just like, actually, I don't want to say yes. And to all this, I think that the thing is, is like, Chicago's great for improv because the high-level people have been doing it for fifteen years and they're so skilled. There's
0: such a tradition with Second City and IO and the Annoyance. And it's it's great. There's great teachers who have been around for a long time. Because it's
1: such a mecca, it also attracts everybody, you know. And so at the lower levels, it's like a real fucking shit show, and you have to wade your way through it. Um, And I just was like, oh, I don't. I just want to be. Obviously, I knew that I would have to wade my way through anything, but I just didn't want to have to agree with shit I didn't agree with until I got there, you know? So
0: what was the the stand-up scene in Chicago like when you decided to make that switch?
1: Um, Well, I was in social work school. I lived at my parents' house, and I, like, Googled, like, who is the best comics in Chicago (laughs) to just figure out, like, how to do this. 2006, maybe? Okay, so So just before... Kumail was there, Hannibal was there, TJ was still there. there. They had moved to New York. Kyle had just left, Matt Bronger had just left, Um, Pete Holmes had just left. Uh, So all these people, I mean, I. It was a very strong upper class. Like to start as a freshman with those people just starting to make it was a really awesome time to
0: start. Okay, so you Googled funny. Like, who
1: are the best comics in Chicago? Then I rented a theater, and I...
0: You rented a theater. You didn't seek out a pre-existing space. No. What was What was the thinking? I don't know. That? I
1: thought that's how you did it. <laughs> you didn't I, Google? No. You didn't
0: Google comedy Club? No, clubs. I just
1: was like, who are the stand-ups? Mm-hmm. I rented a theater. Uh, what theater? It was called Gorilla Tango Theater. It's on Milwaukee Avenue. How did you find Lake, that place? Bucktown. They had just opened, and they were looking for people to produce shows there. And it was, like, super cheap. Mm-hmm. So... I organize this stand up. I like was like I do stand up. <laughs> I literally just said that, and then it was true. Um, it's the secret. Yeah, and then I MySpace'd all these comics. Right, because it was two thousand six, and that's yep, what you use. and used was in like, can you come do my show? I just moved here from Boston, and then they did. I was ballsy as fuck. I don't know how. What was your
0: success rate at the beginning?
1: I mean, I in hosted terms of this show.
0: people to show up.
1: Oh yeah! Every comic that came out of Chicago did this did this show. Do you remember who was on your first show? Because comics are looking for Chicago comics are like so hungry for Mm -hmm. stage time, like New York comics. There's the same like hustle mentality. Um, I don't remember who did my first show, but I mean, honestly, I ran the show for like a year. I mean, every every person that you can think of that came out of Chicago that would have been there at the time came through, and it was. I mean, it's so embarrassing because you don't realize when you start that you're just gonna know that new people join. But they start, you know, at the lower levels. So people that are working their way up have known, you've all, we've all known each other for 10 or 15 years. Right. So it's like, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry that that's. Like, I didn't know you had to have a microphone. I mean, it was fine. It was fine.
0: <laughs> so it was more of like a comedy slam?
1: I guess it was a comedy slam. Um, but yeah, from there, I got hired to work at the Lincoln Lodge, which was. Because it was so bizarre and gutsy. Mm -hmm. At the time, people weren't really, like... The alternative boom was just starting to hit Chicago, so the Lodge was a place that had launched people like TJ. And then there was one club in town, Zanies. But, like, every bar having a show wasn't Mm -hmm. really a thing yet. So, like, a chick moving to the city and then just throwing her own show with, like, flyers and shit like that was a weird outlier. Um, right. And so the people that produced the Lincoln Lodge noticed that, and then I got to work there. And at the time, um, and it still is, I mean, it still runs, but at the time it was like the place for alternative yeah. comedy in Chicago. Yeah, I
0: got to see Lincoln Lodge when Just for Laughs was doing a Chicago Exactly. Festival. Yeah. I and mean... You could tell that that was the
1: The, like, the, the room you wanted to go up, yeah. the most respected room in the city, and... Um, I got to join their like producing cast, which meant that you get a certain number of spots per month, and you took tickets at the door and shit. <laughs> it's in the back of a pancake house now. It's at a rock club, but at the time it was like naga hide chairs and beehived mm-hmm. waitresses. Fucking awesome.
0: Did you try to work the road at all while you were still in Chicago?
1: You know, I really didn't. Um, I mean, I, I certainly did some. I, by the time I was leaving, I was doing some clubs. Midwestern only. Um, and I was also flying myself to New York and LA a lot. Um, and just doing a bunch of alternative shows there. Um, but Chicago is really a, a, a I mean, you can do five, you can do five sets a night there and you can also scrap together a living because rent's pretty cheap. So I didn't really need to, it was like going, it really was like going to grad school. Like, going on the road would have been fine if I wanted to be, like, a road comic and make those connections locally in the Midwest. But if you're trying to eventually move, the thing to do is to just, like, stay and grind it out in Chicago.
0: What were you doing for day jobs at the time?
1: I was a nanny for a while. I mean, I I, I worked in special ed, and that's why I was in social work school, because I wanted to be a therapist. But... Then I stopped doing that, and then I was a nanny, and then I just didn't have a day job. Like, I I was pretty s- small business savvy. My dad is a small business, and, like, I just grew up around people that figured out how to make things work. So, I mean, I haven't had a day job in, like, since I was, I haven't had a day job in a bunch of years. Like, so, like I think when I was 26 or 27, I stopped. What was,
0: yeah, what was the moment when you realized you didn't need to do anything besides well, comedy? Well, I,
1: I got this gig, my buddy had opened a bar in Logan Square, which is a very cool, like the equivalent of Brooklyn or whatever in Chicago. But his bar was one of the first spots there. And so he was trying to figure out how to attract people. And I was like, oh, you should have an open mic. And so he agreed to pay me to host an open mic, like 150 bucks, which is like this crazy crazy amount amount of money. And I agreed to work my ass off and... For, like, six months or a year, I did it by myself, and then I brought in my my best friend, Adam Burke, um, to co-host it with me. Adam's an awesome Chicago comic. And we would get, like, 60 comics on Wednesday nights, 200-person audiences, like, real audiences would come. We made this dude, like, this bar became, like, the bar in the neighborhood because of an open mic. Like, we made it this cool place to go and hang, um...
0: That's not something you see in New York or L.A. It's a, co- a cool open mic. No,
1: it was like we won like awards. I mean, we had to we had to go to like a party for Chicago magazine where it was like the best of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And people would you know, it was like best all these like highfalutin businesses, you know, like best, like small law firm like whatever mm-hmm. it is, best like hand cured meat. And right. then they'd be like, what are you guys? You know, what are you guys? Everybody's trying to.
0: Best pizza. Network, Best yeah. Chicago Everybody's, pizza. what
1: do you guys do? We were like, we are, we're the best album, Mike! <laughs> like, I was just like, we were like, good good day. We ha- literally do not want to talk to you at all. But actually, that's where I met my wife. Um, okay. Stand-up comic Rhea Butcher. And a ton of comics started there uh, that are now starting to have success. You were just talking about Joel Kim Booster. Mm-hmm. He totally went up on that stage when I was still hosting there. And Mateo Lane. Like, awesome Chicago comics Everybody would come through. It was, gr- it was a great moment in my life. And then I started teaching a, a stand-up class as well. And that helped me have money. Ah. A stand-up class. A bee just flew at me. A yeah. uh, stand-up class that was just for women. Okay. Um, because when I started in Chicago, in my generation, it, there was just me and Beth Snelling. That, those were the women. Literally, those were the women. And then you, there's, like, 175 dudes.
0: You talked about how the improv scene was kind of hostile or not necessarily friendly to women. Was the stand-up scene the same way?
1: You know, I don't know if... Ho- the thing about it is, I don't know that... Well, sometimes... we're uncomfortable, Sometimes straight-up not- hostile. And then the other thing, the thing that's more difficult to deal with... Because when people are hostile, I think as a woman, there's a certain part of you that expects that, regardless of what your job is. Like, it is... When people ask, what's it like to be a woman in comedy, which is a question you get so much when you do this job, it's like, well, what's it like to be a woman in the world? It's, like, genuinely really scary. People are shitty. People are crazy. Like, we are 51% of the population. It should not be this complicated to be a woman. It should not be this scary on a daily basis, but it is. And yeah, I think Yeah, just Hillary Clinton. Yeah, just ask Hillary Clinton. Just ask... Just Anyone. look at the fact that we... The pe- people are still saying, like, I would, I would vote for a woman but not her. Like, that statement alone is so bonkers to me that people who think they're progressive, that, th- that's a statement that comes from people who think they're progressive. There are 162 million women in the United States. You're telling me that you think you're progressive because, you're te- because there's a woman you would vote for? You can imagine a woman out of 162 million people? A hypothetical one. You can imagine a hypothetical. <laughs> How fucking brave of you, you little hero? I mean, that's, that's the world that we live in. And so, yeah, I think sometimes it looks like open hostility. I think other times it looks like misunderstanding and that's sometimes harder because for instance, you know, people will say like, why, why do we need to look for non-straight male white voices? Like why, why hire a woman in a writer's room? Look for the best person, Right. and no, I mean, of course, sometimes that person—that best person—is a woman, and so it's a little bit bonkers that you think that that couldn't be true. <laughs> uh, but also, I think like the best—the best room isn't always ten of the best white guys, because they are going to make something that they don't realize. Contrast makes things better. You know, like just looking at a show, five straight white dudes in a row, they will look better. They will look like they're more interested in comics if there is a woman and a person of color in that lineup somewhere. Because they will look like they are saying something that is unusual, as opposed to like the fourth guy up who has to just say the same shit from the same perspective. Like we help you, you know, like we are actually an asset to you looking more interesting. I wish that straight white dudes realize that. Like if when yeah. we are around, you are a better candidate for the job. When there's a woman hired to write for SNL, then you look like your packet is more interesting because your packet doesn't look like her packet.
0: No, I mean, we're here at Montreal for Just for Laughs and there have been years where it was striking how many of the new faces were nerdy guys with glasses or one year it was so many chubby guys with beards and it's like
1: and of course there's that's that none of this is to say that those aren't val- valuable comics but like why would you want to be the eighth dude with a beard like you are not that's not a good position for you to be in like right, it's you not
0: wanna, you want to have a unique voice
1: yes that's how you're going to succeed. That's how you're going to get your own show. Mm-hmm. That's how you're going to get to write on the show that you want
0: to. What were you telling the women in your st- in the stand-up comedy class you were teaching about how they could find their own voice?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, a stand-up class is never going to be the thing that makes you a comic, right? Because it's really stage time. But I think for women, because we didn't grow up seeing people that look like us on stage, sometimes it's hard to just figure out what your first five minutes should be. And that was always the goal of the class is like, let's work together to figure out your first five minutes. And I think when people start doing standup, sometimes it can be confusing. Like, what am I supposed to be talking about here? Um, and really it's just like, what's important to you. And so that would be what I'd be talking to women about is what's important to you. Let's talk about that. And women specifically are encouraged to compromise So it's like we can have opinions that are really strong, but like, let's not shout them or let's not say them in a way that makes a dude feel uncomfortable. And that is kryptonite for comedy, right? Because you cannot be reasonable on stage. You have to, or you can be reasonable, but you cannot be allowing another perspective to be true. You have to be so clear about your perspective. You have to prove your point. You have to know what your point is. And then you have to stand behind it. You have to be confident. So confident and it has to be so well thought out and you have to be unshakable. And you also have to be generally, I think, like, right. Like you have to make sense. You can't just be supporting nonsense. Uh, or you can support nonsense, but well, right. right. You have to, you have you're have going to be
0: a surreal, absurd.
1: You have to, yeah, you have to, pain. there has to be clarity to that. And I think that's something women are specifically conditioned to not be good at. Like we're the peacemakers, so it's you're really nurturers, yeah. Yeah. So it's really caregivers. the whole point of the class was kind of to like untrain that. <laughs> like let's let's be the women that we would be if we didn't worry about dudes wanting to fuck us.
0: What did um What was the moment that you realized you were ready to leave Chicago?
1: There wasn't a moment. I had just done everything there. And I loved that city. I mean, it was super cool because also Chicago has like an underground arts scene that when you do comedy, when you do stand up there, you can have access to these other things. Like I was a circus ringmaster and got to tour with the circus. I was like a blogger for the Chicago Tribune. Like you you were tapped to do all of these things that weren't because there isn't an overarching entertainment industry. Stand up is applied in these like really cool funky ways that it's like really fun to do stand up there. But I just imagined myself being, there isn't a, a financial future there. So it's like, you can have every cool opportunity in the world. You can get stage time till you die. You're going to be 40 and maybe live on a couch. So like, what's (laughs) like, what's your cost benefit analysis? (laughs) I just like realized that I wanted. As you were getting closer to
0: thirty, you're like, "No, that's yeah." Not I mean, good. my friends
1: that I knew from college, or my friends that were in other industries, were starting to have families, and I knew that that would never be possible for a for a woman that did my job that lived in that city that was also gay, because there wasn't like some dude that I was going to marry that was going to have some different job that made more money, and I wasn't a dude, so I couldn't just like leave my wife at home with kids. Like I knew I was going to have to pull in enough money to be able to have the things that I wanted. And I knew that wasn't possible for me in
0: Chicago. So was that the overriding reason why you picked Los Angeles instead of New York was you know, financial I, I went back.
1: I went back and forth. Like I honestly thought I was going to move to New York. I went the, the year before I moved. I went eight times to New York. I'd spent two months living in LA. Like I mm. really tried it out. And then what had happened was that most Chicago comics that had moved to New York had then done this exodus to L.A. So I really did it based on I know more people in L.A., but it ended up being the right choice for me because I'm a super intense person. And if I had moved to New York, I think I would have died because it's just like such an intensity. L.A. actually works against my personality because it's like chill. It's basically a giant suburb. Yeah. You're supposed to hike all day. Um I mean, it's not show. People are very driven there, but it's not like hard to live there. The same way that it's hard to right. live in quality of life New York. And I am, I'm so like, intense and driven, and yeah.
0: Was that? I would have lost my mind. Was that drive? Did that? Did that help you succeed when you immediately got to LA? Because you did start to get things. Yeah. Like I, a weekly show at the yeah. UCB.
1: I think actually, it's it's interesting because. L.A. is great for my personality type. It's a self-starter town, and that's, like, who I am through and through. Um, It really is about, like, create your own buzz, create your own thing. You can't wait for anything to happen because nothing will ever happen if you wait. And, yeah, that's that's perfect for L.A. Like, that's what I am, and that's what that city is. How did
0: you convince the UCB to give you that prime slot? Because that was, like, the comedy...
1: I, it was a comedy bang bang spot. Bang they bang had spot. it for ten years. They only stopped. It was the Scott most popular left. show at the most theater. Most popular show in Los Angeles. Like, uh, and then Meltdown had like started, and so those were like yeah, two best shows in the city. And um, I'm super fucking. I don't know. I'm super <laughs> fucking ballsy. I like. I just. I went to my friend Ryan McMenamin, who has mm-hmm. a record label that's called A Special Thing Records. At the time, I didn't really know him, but he had put out.
0: You knew the website, though? He had put out an
1: album for a couple friends of mine. Okay. So they did an intro, and I was just like, I want to have coffee with you because I have this idea for a stand-up podcast. Mm -hmm. Like, nobody's doing it yet. I think we could turn a live show into a podcast. I think it would be – I think people, if we kept the the sets really short, I think people would consider putting their material out there that way. And I think we could give people that live outside of major markets an opportunity to really experience an alternative – stand-up show and I like went and had coffee with him and like pitched him this idea and he was like okay I mean I think it's possible like he had wanted to do something similar but he just wasn't sure like how to make comics feel like they weren't being exploited and I was like well you give them the option that they don't have to be on the podcast that they can do the live show and also you work with a comic so that they don't just think it's like a record label right that's trying to steal from them um so we went in we we he set up a meeting with the UCB because he knew the people there. We went in, and I, like, pitched him this show. And it just so happened that they had not heard this pitch before and that Scott had told them that day that he was going to end Comedy Bang Bang. We were the first people to meet with them. And we were the first people to meet with them that that, that, that weren't just pitching a continuation of Comedy right. Bang Bang.
0: And, it, and, it, and your pitch wasn't vague. It was very specific. Yeah. Um.
1: That's totally right.
0: So you also started writing columns for A.V. Club. I did, yeah. Which I guess you just mentioned when you were in Chicago, you'd done some blogging for the trip. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But again, I just... I just pitched them... I was like, I want to... I'm a Chicago person, so they were aware of me, you know, because the A.V. Club is headquartered in Chicago. Um, So I was like, I just think... I'm about to go on the road for the first time and like, I'm really, I mean, I really was in the, the year and a half that I was really writing that. And I've like taken a break cause I'm just too busy right now. But like right. that year and a half was really the year and a half where I was either gonna like make it or not make it. And as, oh, as turning this into a career. And so I was like, I think that this is interesting tough to talk about and. Nobody's really doing this for you. Will you let me do it?
0: How important was having that voice on a platform as big as the AV club to making the difference between you making it and not making it?
1: I mean, it was an interesting thing because at first, because I was a Chicago comic, because I was so unknown on a national scale, um, at first people like on social media or on the AV club itself were really supportive. And it was a very cool way of connecting with a large audience. And then it was funny cause it started to flip around. Like as I started to have TV appearances, <laughs> as I started to actually be making a living, right. um, commenters. And it's not like I like read the comments. Sometimes the AV club would send me screenshots because they wanted me to be safe because people okay. would say such crazy shit. They wanted me to know, like, this is what people are saying just so that you're safe and aware of what's going on. Did that make you
0: feel safer to know? Well,
1: I mean, I think that, yes and no, like, I think that it is, at some level, it's nice to not know what people are saying. At another level, I think it's, the, the vulnerability, the emotional vulnerability of going out on stage, I think is something that every comic is prepared for. Why would you do this? if you weren't prepared for that, but the physical vulnerability that goes along with just being a person that's going to walk into a room where you've never been there before and you don't know who's in the audience and you don't know how they feel about you. Like that is something that I think people don't talk about as much as we could, especially I'm a tiny, I'm like a small person. I'm not, I'm very outspoken and I'm really confident, but I'm not, I can't, win in this fight against a giant dude that's that hates me because I talk about being gay or whatever so it's like um I think safety issues are real <laughs> when you do this job
0: and you wrote about uh, one of your earlier columns I think it might have been where you wrote about touring with Anthony Jesselnick and how the crowd could have not been more not in your corner
1: oh my god yeah <laughs> but and that's like I mean, I have never, honestly, um, it went so badly. I'm just looking at the time. Oh, I have to leave in a second. But, no, we'll wrap up on this. Um, It went so badly when I first was opening for Anthony that I literally called my mom. Like, that's, like, how bad it would. I walked off stage and I called my mom and was, like, basically, like, can I move home? You know, like, (laughs) not really. But I just mean it was so bad. Um, Anthony could not have been more supportive as a comic and as a friend and mentor. And also, that was an unbelievable position to be in. I actually think, like, and this kind of relates to what we were talking about earlier. So people that go to see Anthony Jeselnik at a huge, you know, 2,000-seat theater do not expect his opener to be a tiny lesbian that's going to come out and be smiley and tell jokes about how, like, we're all in it together. (laughs) Like, that's not his crowd. (laughs) And I am so grateful that I got a chance to do that because that is the gauntlet that makes you strong comic. And I think that I think that people that are in the majority who happen to just fall that, you know, straight white dudes who happen to have this voice that is in the majority in television and film, it's like I actually feel a little bit. Back for them that they will maybe never get to experience that because it doesn't go the other way you know there aren't like straight dude comics who go open for i don't even i can't even think of a divisive female person like I.
0: or like a or a normal like straight white hipster comic doing the chitlin circuit
1: yeah that's not really a thing that although sometimes that does happen and that's interesting too but yeah. But, yeah, you're right. They don't usually get put in that position. Get out of their
0: comfort zones. A lot of people stay in their Yeah, they don't usually
1: have to, right, because there is work within their comfort zone. But there isn't really – I mean, I don't play LGBT rooms because, like, that's just not the era that I came up in. Like, I came up in an area where I don't live in West Hollywood. I live in Los Feliz. Like, I don't live – I don't – I didn't go to gay bars. I went to, like, hipster bars. Like, that's just who I am and what – my background was so I've always played ma- mainstream rooms and I think it's an unbelievable experience to have most of the audience hate you <laughs> and then you have to make them agree with you. Right. Unbelievable. I,
0: I ask all of my guests this um as you've gone through that period and you came out of it and you did uh Craig Ferguson and got to sit on panel with Jay Leno. <laughs> it's so cool. And, yeah. And now you know you Done the special for CISO and you have a, a series on CISO with your wife that's just coming out. Um, who or what has been the best in terms of giving you advice to get to survive the gauntlet and come out the other end? Has there been a person or like well, a, you know, a book or a thing? I don't know um... that there's
1: been a specific person. I will say that at this point I know you know a majority of working comics today. And The experience of continuing in this field and the respect that you get from the other people that you work with, the other people who do this job, is unmatched. I I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe politicians feel this. I don't know who gets to experience this because people know what you go through to do this job, and that's... Which is that, like, it's and it's it's also, like, fucking arrogant and ridiculous to do this job, but it's also lonely and hard and long. Yeah. And I, that's what I mean, is that people know how arrogant and ridiculous it is, right. and people know how hard and long. And, and I just feel like, you know, the dudes that I saw starting in Chicago, who I still know now, or Anthony, who gave me that opportunity, or Maria Bamford, who's the first person that ever took me on the road and came and did take my wife as a favor to, like, Rhea and I were like, God, wouldn't it be amazing if my hero, Maria, and her hero, Paul of Tompkins, came and did our little baby scripted show, and they both fucking showed up and did it for us because they care about us. Um, that's an unbelievable feeling. It's, it's really awesome.
0: Uh, so on the flip side, if a new comic approaches you, or if you were to teach a class again, what's the first thing you tell these new... Yeah, I always just
1: say you just have to do the work. Like that is there's no uh there's no shortcut. There's no other advice that anybody can give you because you learn as you go. This is a this is a job that is a trade, you know, it's a craft. Like like being like a metalsmith or something, like like you there's no schooling for it. It's not you're not a doctor, you don't like learn you know, learn when somebody teaches you how to do it. You fucking fail a million times. You get better, and you fail at things you didn't even know would be available to you. And so it's just about doing the work. You have to love to work. You have to love this work. And and if you do, it's amazing to get to do this job.
0: Well, Cameron, it's been, uh, it's been amazing and fun to watch you grow and evolve over the last decade. I can't believe it! Out of this, so out of this fresh-faced college grad <laughs> in the hockey jersey. It's so
1: great, man! It's, with, it's so nice to the talk to you with the long hair you. on both sides. Yeah, to this, yeah, yeah, yeah. To this oh, confident,
0: to this sides. confident stand-up with.
1: Awesome, hey Sean! Thank you so much. It was really nice to talk to you. Is Have right? a great rest of your fest. You too, Karen. Yeah, thanks. thanks.
0: things first.